Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. My name is Kristen Harcourt. I'm an executive coach and professional speaker. And I created this podcast to talk about what it looks like to create humanized workplaces where leaders can really do their best work and create an environment where everyone around them can also do their best work. And I know you're going to be very excited about the information that's shared today with our guests because uh, we were already talking offline for 15 minutes and I wanted to start recording because he was throwing out so much wisdom for you. So, very excited to introduce you to Alain Hankins. Alain is the Managing Director at Hankins Leadership Group. He's talking to us right now from the Netherlands. So we've got a global, uh, for, I know that we have a global audience as well. Um, I'm located in Canada, in Burlington, Ontario. And I love that Alain actually knows Canada. So I could say Burlington and he knew what I was talking about because normally I say Toronto. And some of my U.S. friends have said, oh, what's, what area of the U.S. is that? I'm like, no, 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 Toronto, Canada. Um, so uh, Alain also is the best-selling author of Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. Welcome to the show, Alain. Kristen, it is such a pleasure to be with you. I'm so excited for our conversation. Me too, me too. So Alain, let's start off with, um, you know, right now in the world, there's a lot going on. We have a global pandemic. And it's been a little bit disheartening over the last couple of weeks as well um, with some things that have been going on in the U.S. when, when it comes to race. And I know we were talking just earlier, um, both of us feeling a little bit heartbroken, but at the same time really activated and, and wanting to get involved. What's on your mind right now? Where, where are you at? I think it's important for us to be authentic. Oh, my gosh. There's, thanks, Kristen. <laughs> That's a big question. There is a lot on my mind. So I first want to self-identify. So I, I'm a white man. And so what I recognize for myself is that my ability to, there's a lot of really difficult issues going on, right? So we've got all the stuff going on. And my choice to opt in or opt out of how emotionally invested. Now, if that is not the definition of privilege, I don't know what is the definition of privilege. And the fact is, you know, my hope is as all of us are experiencing the coronavirus pandemic, it is a collective trauma. I mean, if you look in the dictionary, trauma is de defined as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. And obviously many people are saying, gosh, I just can't wait till I can get outside again because they're feeling the effects of the trauma. Well, as best as I can think, imagine if that trauma went on for 400 years, right? If we think about systematic oppression by the color of your skin, I don't have to live with that every day. I didn't have to live with that with my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents. If you're a person of color in the US, you live with this every day. Now I can only imagine what they go through. And I'd like to think that I'm a little bit closer than your average white guy. And the reason I say that is because I'm the grandchild and child of Holocaust survivors. My mother was actually born in 1935 in Belgium, and she spent from the age of seven to 10 separated from her mom in hiding. And her mom, so they didn't see each other for three years, and then they were reunited after the end of the war. The rest of the family were all killed. So basically, she spent those very formative years, and that completely shaped her understanding and experience of the world. So this sense that you could be hunted just because of who you are for your life I, I kind of get that. And I also get what it's like to have inherited trauma because I definitely, I know it in my bones. I don't, I, again, I, 
I pass. I'm a white guy in a world that supports that. So I get the privilege, but my heart is breaking, breaking for my brothers and sisters who are people of color. And uh, I, w I wish I had, I wish I, you know, and, and I hope that this can be yet another wake up call. I just hope we can do something with this time. So thanks for asking. Yeah, you're, you know, and I think it's important to just be honest, right, that yeah. we are feeling a lot of emotions right now. And uh, I think it's important that we give ourselves space um, to take a step back and, and ask ourselves what's going on and, and such an incredible opportunity for reflection. And it sounds like you are doing a lot of reflection and being very thoughtful and mindful around the actions that we take. And um yeah, it's there. There are no easy answers, um, but you know, I hear a lot of empathy and compassion showing up for you. Yeah, I love what you said about reflection. You know, I found I have this little planner that has a quote every day, and there was one the other day from Mark Twain who said, "Reflection is the beginning of reform," yeah. which I love that in the sense that you know, yeah, we need to step back and take some time. The fact is, you know, our digital world travels at the speed of light. You know, information, but human relationships move much more slowly. And for us to have empathy, demonstrating empathy means taking time and showing patience and really listening. So my big job right now is to shut up and listen. That's how yes. I lead is to get out of the way yeah. and listen. Yes, yes, yes. It reminds me of, I shared this last week that um, uh, writing on the top of the piece of paper, I think this is so helpful for so many leaders, I, and anyone really, um, to write down on the, the top of the piece of paper in big letters, WAITS, and WAIT stands for why am I talking? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right? How often do yeah. we always we, taking a step back and, and I've been doing the same as you is doing a lot of observing, a lot of listening. Um, and, 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 and I actually just a, a book that I'm going to start working on and I'm just going to share because this is showing up right now is um, called Me and White Supremacy. And it has a lot of journal prompts actually every single day um, for me to start doing that, right? Taking a step back and, and recognize what some of those unconscious biases are that we all have that I'm not aware of that are showing up. As, uh, with that white privilege. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Thank you. Yeah. So, Alain, what are you noticing as someone who does a lot of leadership developments? Um, I, I was even looking at you've you've worked with um, two thousand. What was it that I was seeing? I was like, wow, Alain. <laughs> um, uh, Twenty five countries, forty two Fortune one hundred companies, um, two thousand groups that you facilitated leadership and behavior change programs. So you've been in the space for a while. You you've been doing the work. What are some of the the patterns that you've been noticing in this last three months? With again, uh, it's it's a VUCA environment always, but there's a lot of stuff happening all at once with this this trauma. What are some of the patterns that you're noticing in in organizations right now? Yeah, you know, you talk about this. It's a great question. You talk about this VUCA environment. I kind of think that these last few months have been VUCA on steroids. If VUCA could not, you know, it's so big. Um, what I'm seeing is, you know, people are going, Wait, what, what do we do? What do we do? How do we handle this? And I'm thinking the people that knew how to lead well before are doing more of the same. And the people who didn't know how to lead well before are doing more of the same. And what I mean by that is like, ultimately, you know, in crises is when leaders are really tested, right? So the challenge that I think so many people are recognizing is how human was our workplace? Because 
you need to be human before all these crises. You need to be exceptionally human right now. I mean, the first thought I had when this started to break, and I'm in the Netherlands, so this all started before North America a couple of weeks. We we're slightly ahead of the curve. And my first thought was, you know, at its core, leadership, it's not about a job title. It's not about control. It's not about power. Leadership is a relationship forged on connection. So as people are going through trauma, like we said before, they're thinking, what does this mean? What should I do? And am I going to be okay? And so as leaders, the first thing we need to do is reach out and connect at a human to human empathic level and say, Kristen, how are you feeling? And then for me to shut up and listen to you and to give you the space as a human being to experience whatever it is. And then for me to normalize and validate that, you know what, not being okay is okay. And I think that there are leaders and organizations who get that. But I saw some studies that said like, as of three weeks ago, about 40% of workers reported that no one had stopped, even though they were already now working from home, no one had stopped to actually check in with them on how they were doing in the midst of all this. And when I read stuff like that, it makes my head spin. Because like, how, how much humanity do you need to have to realize that people are struggling and different people are struggling in different ways. Like when it comes to the pandemic, I heard this great thing where, you know, yes, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. I mean, some people are trying to do this with small children and homeschooling at home. Some people are trying to do this with sick people. Some people are sick themselves. I mean, there's so many different pieces. So it starts by being exceptionally human. Yes. Yeah. And I agree with you completely. I think it is amplifying those behaviors, right? So those people who had the humanity, it's just naturally coming to them. Whereas the ones who are really lacking some of those skills, and we're going to talk about um, not so much the skills that are lacking, but the positive ones, um, what that looks like, because I, I think it has a huge impact. And, you know, it's reminding me what you just said there with some organizations that they're really almost handling it as if it's business as usual, so that people are expected. The expectations haven't changed, right? It's like, you're supposed to be performing just like you were performing in the workplace, back-to-back -back Zoom meetings, being pulled in all of these directions. And, and so then I, one of the leaders I was coaching, like she said, in order to be able to maintain that, you know, up late at night, every single night, working on the weekends, it's not sustainable. And those people are gonna get burnt out. And we're gonna have mental health, tons of mental health challenges if that continues. Yeah, they're already showing up. I was reading some stats that already, I think 45% of workers are complaining of mental health related issues, whether that's already depression, fatigue, anxiety. It's yeah. just, it's just, it's already happening. So this is a, a huge concern about how are people going to be able to address it. The other thing is I also saw this just this past week and you probably follow Josh Burson's yeah. HR report, but he's yeah. saying that, you know, most people are working up to three additional hours a day trying to cope with the, the working from home. Yeah. So yeah, like you're saying, this is not sustainable. And it's like everything that we did poorly is being magnified yeah. right now and in the work from home environment. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about some of the positives. I mean, you wrote a book and I, I, I like what you started off with. There's three secrets. So of course, I'm going to ask you, what are these three secrets? We all want to hear. You know, oh, they're secrets. I can't, I can't tell you. They're, no, I can't tell you. <laughs> You have to get the book. You don't get to hear the secrets. Maybe one of the secrets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So here's the funny, yeah. So the title of the book is Cracking the Leadership Code and the subtitle is, yes, The Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And the three secrets are connection, communication, and collaboration. And I tell people that they go like, 
that doesn't sound very secret. So I love to share the statistic that on average, only about 23% of people think that their leaders lead well. So obviously these aren't secret, but in terms of applying them, clearly a lot of people are missing the mark. So yeah. what can you do to become a better leader? And, I, and this all came out of these three secrets. I didn't hatch them on the back of a cocktail napkin. This comes out of working with over 2000 groups and seeing patterns of behavior. And what I found was I found these three fundamental themes of connect, communicate, collaborate, coming out time and time again. Fact is you cannot lead successfully without mastering these fundamentals. And the journey of mastery is that's the road of leadership development. That's the work. I'd love to say the secrets, you know, read this book and you'll be better. Right. No, not at all. Yes. I mean, what you'll do is you might have some ideas and I'll give you plenty of tools and ways to check your mindset, but ultimately you are in charge of developing your own leadership. And that is the path less traveled, frankly. Yes. Yeah. It, it, there's no, there's no magic wand. There's no little, it, like you said, what, even with the secret, it's doing the work. You can, you can lay out the groundwork of the, this is what it looks like. And then it's the taking the action every day, which guess what, when you're going to be doing leadership development and growth, it's going to be uncomfortable some days. It's not always going to be easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much the willingness to look in the mirror that's really where it starts, right? If we think about it at, at an emotional intelligence level, the, the foundation is self-awareness. And even before you get into any tools, I think the first question for you to ask yourself is the mindset. What's your motive? Why do you want to lead? Because if you're coming at this from the point of view of, hey, well, I can get more money. I can get more prestige. I get more power. It's more about me. You're already operating from the old paradigm of it's about the leader. And I think if nothing else, what we have found, and this comes from the research, what do people want from their leaders? They want people who lead from a sense of purpose, right? We look at purpose-driven organizations, people who connect with empathy, who communicate with authenticity, who collaborate with transparency. All the data says we need a new type of leader, and that's the leader who is much less of a director and much more of a facilitator of moving information and decisions from where they are to where they need to be, which is a totally different skill set than most of us have grown up with because most of us have learned leadership. I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell this in a kind of a fun story way. Yeah. So I, I learned this lesson actually from my kids. So I have two kids. My son, Alex, is now 16 and my daughter, Miranda, is 13. When yeah. they were about six and three, I remember they were in the living room with me and they were being really goofy and they were getting really loud. And I have to confess, Kristen, I got a little triggered. Oh, yes. And suddenly I said to them, would you stop behaving like children? I, I tell you this story for two reasons. Number one, that is a ridiculous thing to say because first of all, they are children. And number two, as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I was in shock because would you stop behaving like children? was the exact same phrase my mother used to use with my brother and me when we were kids. So without realizing it, I had unconsciously inherited the behavior of the previous generation. Yeah. So why do we lead the way we do? For so many of us, we have unconsciously copied the behavior of the previous generation. And where do they learn from? From their leaders and so on and so forth. And this dates back, who started this? It was Frederick Winslow Taylor and the dawn of the industrial age where workers were seen as a pair, literally as a pair of hands. Henry Ford said, why is it every time I want a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? Right. I mean, the world was thought of as you are a 
part in a machine. This is where the term, you know, human beings became human resources. So we were thought of as these interchangeable parts to be taken out and thrown away. You know, there's this, I did all this research around Frederick Winslow Taylor and one of his, what he said about the ideal worker, he said the ideal worker, and I'll quote this, should be so stupid as he should resemble in his mental makeup the ox more than any other type. I mean, so really this is sort of, it came out of this idea of frankly indentured servitude and slavery. I mean, this is where those ideas came from. So if you're leading from this point of view of I'm in charge, I need to tell people what to do. I want to be in control and power and make more money. I would check out your motives first because that's not what we're looking for in our leaders in 2020 and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so interesting. A lot of times when I'm starting with a, a talk or, or doing training, I'll ask people, tell me about your best leaders and tell me about your worst leaders. And of course, <laughs> there's there's a big difference from each side and the ones who are their worst leaders, like you're saying there, and I, I think you, um, you spoke about it so eloquently, is they're just repeating patterns, right? They're just repeating patterns that they've seen and, and a lot of conditioning. And sometimes it's cultural conditioning too. It's coming from different places. And so my question for you, Alain, would be, how do people start? Like, where is a, a, you know, there's people are, we talked about this even earlier, you and I before offline, um, people are in different places in in their journey and and their level of consciousness. And so when you start to think about leadership training and, and helping leaders recognize how they're showing up and that these patterns exist, um, where do you go next? That's a great question. So the first place, if you're committed to growing as a leader and for that sub subtext on that is you're committed to growing as a person. Cause I really think that that's where it starts at leadership development is personal development. So if you've already committed to that, well, congratulations. Cause that is maybe the biggest hurdle you have to get over. Great. Now, what do you do? I think the next best thing to do is to reach out to people who will give you honest, timely feedback on how you show up. Not the people who are gonna tell you what they think you wanna hear because you're in charge, but really whether it's a 360 instrument or an honest conversation, you want to start to close the gap between how people see you and how you see yourself. I think for my money, that is the number one leadership development tool. If you wanna start to accelerate your leadership growth is getting real feedback in real time from people who will tell you the truth. So that's where I would start is get some real feedback. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of a, a statistic that I um, that I saw when you know when you think about self awareness and if you ask a room, oh, do, how self aware you are, you'll see like fifty percent, sixty percent, maybe even higher. The room, oh, I'm very, I have very high self awareness, and then the statistics show it's actually eight to ten percent of people actually have high self awareness, right? So how they see themselves and how other people see them see them are usually quite different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As uh, Daniel Kahneman likes to say, we are blind to our own blindness. And it's so true. So it's so important for us to reach out and get that information and that accurate assessment. Because, you know, when I cite the statistics around, you know, only 23% of people believe their leaders lead well, well, that's an anonymous survey. There is filling out that information and giving it honestly, there's no career limiting move. How many of us can honestly say that going up and asking people for feedback on how we are as their leader, how many people will give us the unvarnished truth? And so we have to realize to do that, we need to be able to create such a culture of safety where people know in their heart of hearts 
that speaking up is okay. And most of us haven't done as much of that work as we think in the same way that most leaders go, oh, I appreciate my people. Again, it's the 80-20 rule. 80% of leaders say, I appreciate my people every week. And only about 20% of employees say that's true. So we have to do more than we think. There is a much bigger gap between our intentions and the outcomes than we think there are. Yeah, and I think something you just uh, brought up there, Alan, that's really important is about the the psychological safety and trust. Uh, I, I remember talking to a, a client, the HR leader had, before she got there, they had done a 360. And when they were talking about the feedback and talking to employees uh, and some of the team, the team said, yeah, you know, I just, I made sure to answer like right in the middle so that it's not too extreme one way or too extreme the other way. So he should be fine with that. So it was just the exercise was just a waste of time. There was actually absolutely no point in doing the exercise, right? Because nobody felt safe to be able to actually share how they felt. And to be quite honest, that leader wasn't ready to hear what they had to say anyway. So there had to be steps that were taken for that individual to be ready to to be part of that process. Kristen, I love that example because what you just touched on with this idea of people doing that not too much, not too little, kind of in the middle of the road, which may have nothing to do with reality. How often does that go on just every single day in our meetings when people ask for ideas? I like to call it, it's kabuki theater, right? We're playing this corporate theater game of, you know, who's the highest paid person in the room? Let's wait for them to share their opinion and then we'll just kind of find our way to agree with them. And the, the rate of change is so slow. And again, this is such old school leadership. And if we continue to perpetuate that, it's just going to keep us very stuck. And clearly the world's changing too quickly for that to be sustainable in any great way. Yes. Yeah. So, so Alan, tell me about your vision. What would you like to see if you had your, um, I give you a magic wand and I said, okay, Alan, you get to have this vision. These are what the, the workplaces of the future are going to look like. What would you like to see? Oh, I love this. Thank you. Thanks for the offer, the magic wand. So I'll, I'll go through what I'd like to see. Um, what I'd like to see are leaders who, first of all, get that you're in the, I don't care what industry you're in, you're in the human being business, no matter what business you're in. Mm-hmm. So you lead with empathy. You realize that empathy is your master superpower as a leader. That is, and again, I define empathy as showing people you understand them and care how they feel. And there are a lot of ways to build it, but the master skill is listening with purpose, not listening to give advice or to interrupt, but to listen really with purpose. Next thing, I would love to see leaders who understand the importance of credibility. I would love to see every leader showing up to their one-on-ones with their direct reports on time and not putting them off every time, right? So showing up on time, leaders who walk the walk and do what they say they're going to do. So that's the two big things I like to see around connection. Then when it comes to communication, I would love to recognize that we have leaders, the ideal leaders are people who understand they need to continually clarify and confirm to make sure we are all on the same page, that they are hungry to make sure we have collective understanding. And they, do, they will do backflips and, and do whatever they can to make sure that we are all walking away on the same page not just intellectually, but emotionally about what we're trying to accomplish and then how we're going to go about doing it. I mean, so many leaders just assume that understanding happens and it's just not the case that actually misunderstanding is the default setting for human communication. So I'd love to see that. Then I'd love to see leaders, we talked about psychological safety, who, who promote 
climates of safety, psychological safety, um, physical safety, <laughs> fiscal safety that, you know, we have places where people are paid enough and have decent benefits and have a, a good living wage and that they're safe. They can speak up that everyone on the team has the same amount of airtime. I'd love to see leaders who bring inclusion and understand that diversity isn't a slogan. It's actually a smart way of doing business is that you want to get as many people as possible. I'd love to see teams filled with gender balance, right? That would be wonderful. So we've got safety. I'd love to see high energy teams where, where you have leaders who understand that energy is a key component that people need to have addressed. So leaders who promote ways to promote physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual energy. Yeah. Some of how they do that is they have a clear sense of purpose and they remind people of what our purpose is. And I'd like to see leaders who understand that they don't need to breathe down people's necks, that they actually create a lot of autonomy and freedom about how people do that. So that's what I'd like to see. Within all of that, I'd like people to also focus with a guiding principle of simplicity, is that they try to basically eradicate complexity from the workplace and to make the employee experience as wonderful as possible. And if you could have that all by next Tuesday, that would be awesome. <laughs> I, we're so on the same page. And, and when I say, for everyone listening, when I say humanizing the workplace, Alain has just beautifully captured, painted a picture of what I think that looks like, right? There's lots of different parts and pillars of that. Um, it reminds me of the book. Have you read the book Essentialism? Um, I think it does a really great job of talking about the simplicity piece. Yeah, yeah, it's a Doug McEwen, I think. Yes, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Greg, Greg McEwen, I think. Oh, Greg, does, Greg McEwen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. great yeah. job of explaining that um, that simplicity piece. Yeah, um, so I'm on board as well, and uh, so everybody who's listening, I'm sure you're all on board. But perhaps there's some people here who are recognizing. I know there might be HR leaders who are listening, and they're wanting to know how do I create the business case for this, or maybe there's some CEOs that are still not a hundred percent bought in yet. What are some of those ways we can uh, we can craft the business case for this, Ellen? Yeah, sure. If you want to craft the business case, go to the science. And by the way, my book has got 30 pages of footnotes because I felt the need to document this because like you, I have lots of skeptical clients who are like, show it, prove it to me. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. So for example, when it comes to empathy, which sounds like the softest, fuzziest thing in the world. Well, DDI did this wonderful study of 15,000 leaders. They found that people who listen with empathy outperform their leader colleagues by 40% on a host of different metrics. Turns out the number one thing to improve employee retention is feeling cared for by your immediate supervisor. Fact is you can Google stats around any of this and you can find there's just so much support and research that's been done on all of these quote unquote soft skills that support the hard business case as to why you should do that. So there's really no, at this point in this age of transparency, there's really no reason you can't find the research backing you up. I think the bigger question beyond the research is, are you willing to have the difficult conversation with someone who frankly doesn't want to change? Because I really believe that we can share all this. And yes, I'm a big believer in Covey's circle of influence and circle of concern and do what you can. But yeah. ultimately, if the senior people in an organization do not embrace a mindset of really, we'll call it servant leadership, if they really see it as actually, no, this is my playground for me to play in and you all work for me, you're not going to be able to make the substantial change you want to. And then you're going to have to have a different conversation. But I think that's where it starts. It starts with 
you willing the willingness to have those more challenging conversations. And I think if you frame it through the business case, you might be able to get further because not only is it a good business decision, it's a great people decision because the fact is, it is the people decisions. You know, I was just listening to a wonderful podcast with, you know, Hubert Jolie, who was the CEO of Best Buy and turned them around. And he, he had this great example is that, you know, when he came in, Best Buy was in shambles. And they said, you know, turn around. First thing we do is we cut all the employees out. He said, no. He said, this is the problem. He said, he actually shifted, whenever he had business meetings, because the tendency in our big, in our meetings is where we start with, let's go through the numbers, right? He said, in my meetings, We'd never go through the numbers first. We'd go through the numbers last. We'd talk about the people first and then the projects and what we're working on and then how it's impacting the customers and the business. And then we'd cover the financials at the end because mm. let's face it, our financials are just a lagging indicator of all the work that's being done by the people and in the business. And so the problem is most businesses have that all literally backwards which is we're focused on the numbers and not on the people, when in fact, it's the people who produce the numbers. I mean, what a very intentional and meaningful shift, right? That's, that's really, and this is what, what, what I mean when I say you have to, uh, you can't just talk about your values. You need to live and breathe the values. You say you're a people first organization, your meetings start with the people part, not with getting into the numbers, right? This is what it looks like to actually create those meaningful shifts that feel uncomfortable at first, right? Because it's been done a certain way. And so of course, anytime you start doing something different, it's going to feel uncomfortable at first, but that's what it looks like to, to really, really, really create those shifts. I, I love that example. And um, I think what you've said, and, and I've talked to a lot of HR leaders about this as well, it's about going in there and having some courageous conversations. Sometimes it's about being bold and it's about holding, holding a, a mirror up and, and also recognizing you, you, you can't say one thing and do another thing, right? You have, okay, well, this leader, it's okay if they act like this, or this leader, it's okay. I think of Simon Sinek when he talks about the, um, I don't think we're, we're, we're swearing on the podcast, so I'll say the brilliant a-hole. And mm -hmm. so it's like, everyone knows who the brilliant a-hole is. You can go ask around the organization. They know who that person is. And it's like, oh, they're untouchable. We'll just put them over in the corner here and pretend that's not happening. No, no, you don't do that. You yeah. say those behaviors are not acceptable. This is what it looks like to work here, right? It's, it's really owning what you're saying. And as you can see, I get really angry or yeah. I get very energized when I think about this because this is the real work, right? It's to live and breathe and actions always speak louder than any words. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, we think about what we say. This is, this is the leader trap is that we think what we say and then what we do and then what gets measured is important. When in fact, from the employee point of view, it's completely backwards. It's like, no, what get measured? And then what do you do? And then what do you say? So we really have to think about it. But I love what you say, Kristen, about the sense of having the conversations, the difficult ones. And yeah, in some ways as HR professionals, or if you're not in HR, being someone who's passionate about the importance of people, Look, 15 years, I've been in this business over 20 years. 15 years ago, when I brought in the concept of emotional intelligence, it was very common for clients to look at me like I had two, two heads. Like, what are you talking about? Mindfulness in the workplace? I mean, again, 15 years ago, that was, I was so fringy and out. And now, yeah. major, some of my major clients, we, they have mindfulness champions. I mean, this is not new. So we're on a progression. And your choice as a person who cares about the profession 
with HR and about people, again, HR, human resources, there's a funny word there, is you, know, you have a choice. Do you wanna be on the cutting edge of the evolution of history or are you gonna wait for someone else to lead the charge? And I think for all of us in our own spheres of influence, we have the opportunity to take a stand, to step up and do what's right. Like you're saying, is to walk the talk. We know what's important. And for us to not just go through on autopilot, but to stop and question, why do we start our meetings with the business numbers? And for you to say, hey, you know, I, I had this new thought. Why don't we start about the people and do the numbers at the end? Yeah, it's okay. The only reason that we've been doing it that way is because that's what our leaders taught us and their leaders taught them and so on and so forth. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, the pandemic has been this wonderful opportunity to kill sacred cows. How many of us in our organization, we can never have everyone working from home. Right. Well, yes, you can, <laughs> you know, watch, just watch. Yeah. So, so don't stop innovating. This is a great time to continue to look at every single process, product, and system that you're creating, every single ways and means of collaboration and going, is this supporting us and the organization and our world at large? And if so, great, continue. And if not, make a change, yeah. make the change. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I knew that it would be like this, um, that we would, there'd be so much we could talk and we could make this a three hour podcast, but I know all of you and your attention span and what that looks like these days. So I'm being conscious of that. Uh, what, what kind of final thoughts would you like to leave with the audience, Alan? Oh my goodness. Uh, this has been, first of all, thank you so much for the conversation today. So audience, you know, I think, a couple of big things. Number one is these are challenging times uh, on multiple levels. And so the idea of self-care, again, I know that sounds soft and fuzzy, but do what you can to take care of yourself so that you can take care of the people around you. That building resilience starts with self-care and self-awareness because if you're feeling more tired and less productive, Give yourself a break. You're going through a traumatic pandemic right now. So do that. Have some care and compassion for yourself as well as the people around you. I think that's a really good reminder for all of us. As they used to say on the airplanes when we were flying is put your own oxygen mask on first before you help those around you. So I would say remember to do that. Keep breathing so that you can go out there and make a difference in those lives around you every day. Yes, Alan. I mean, you're totally speaking my language. Um, where can people find you? Okay. Easiest place to find me is the book has its own website, which is www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. While you're there, you can learn all about the book. You can actually download the first chapter to preview the book. That will actually connect you right to my website. So you can contact me. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. You can learn all about my work that I do, either with individuals, teams, and organizations, all under the umbrella of helping them to become stronger leaders. And so please do reach out. We need stronger leaders. And guess what, everybody, you can, we can all continue to grow and, and develop, and it's a beautiful evolution. So thank you so much for being here today, Alain. Kristen, thank you. It's really been my pleasure. Have a beautiful day, everyone.